0: To uh, talk to a person in the audience who's born in 1974, I don't want to say more. But if he wants to come up, would be delighted to talk to him. And would uh, right. I'm sure Yehuda would be very happy to talk to him.
1: Oh, amazing! Someone born in 1974. You, it's it's a very, uh, you know, it's a good hint that helps out a lot. All right, if you're born in 1974, please stand up. Apparently, I find you interesting. Yeah, if you didn't, if you feel so bad interrupting, you shouldn't have then. So you didn't feel that bad.
0: I thought that you'd like to speak to that person <laughs> born joking. in 1974 more than continuing to work. But
1: oh, no. Is no. just kidding. Come on. Um, 1974. All right, well, let's see it. I'm all ears. Strangely, the kids are not up, which is great. Here we go. Let's go to River in the
2: meantime, and hopefully whomever was born in 1974 will, um, you know, garner up the courage. Raven.
3: Oh, I was just going to uh, comment that I think China's ultimate goal is to see the sanctions regime fail because they have their own imperial Yeah,
1: it'd be great. I mean, it's a little quiet this morning, but it's a good time Um, and uh, we'd love to speak to him. We were speaking uh, with you earlier uh, via text through Victoria. So uh, if you would like to come up, uh, that'd be a great time. We can discuss what's going on. If you're speaking to Malcolm Nance, I was just talking to him recently and I mentioned you and it would be great. I hope he did speak to you, uh, to our friend. Hold on here. And if now is not a good time, perhaps you're busy. And that's cool, too. But uh, we can introduce ourselves to the room.
0: Okay, Raver, um, I don't think Yehuda could hear you speak, so don't take it the wrong way. Yoda, I think you, you're missing a lot of people speaking. Um, yeah.
1: Do you, I'm going to reconnect.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, Raver, please continue.
3: Oh, it's all good. I figured he was having some sort of issues. Yeah, I just I think dealing with China, um, I think they're trying to play both sides of the fence with an ultimate goal that the, the sanctions regime against Russia fails. Because if if Western sanctions break against Russia then there's gonna be nothing uh, to stop China and her own imperial ambitions.
0: Yeah. The that's that could be although they're as the same French there's quite a long way between the cup and the lips uh, and Yehuda should be back yes Yehuda is back and can hear us
2: I think our friend left um, am I wrong? I think you're right they're just looking for him in the participants list
1: yeah All right, am well, James if you're there come back if you'd like um, we, we can discuss the Homer's that have come on in and uh or he might not have liked being called out. Who knows? That's the other thing. Oh, yeah. All right. So um, we have some, I don't know if anyone was here last night. We had some great speakers. We had General McRyan, Australian general, um, came to give us an update about Ukraine. It was pretty awesome. And then we had uh, uh, retired Navy SEAL Chuck Ferrer, a friend of the show and a friend of mine. And he was here. And that was great. Um, we're going to keep providing you up-to-date analysis, uh, r- reporting from the ground, all that good stuff, um, all day, every day. Uh, and today is no different. We have some surprise guests coming on. I haven't told anyone on the panel because I just thought of it right now. There's an individual who we've had on before, a very famous American, and hopefully we're going to we're going to get him on uh, toot sweet, uh, hopefully in the afternoon. So check it out. I will put a call out. Um, I don't want to say his name and then him not show up and you accuse me of sensationalism. So uh, hopefully that'll be today. And uh, and other than that, I have to get ready. So I will be back shortly. And uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you all today or this morning. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, Yuda. Thanks, Yuda. Domin, yes. uh,
0: do you have an idea about whether it's a good idea to cap gas prices or not?
2: cap gas prices at the point of um, what you're willing to pay russians what you will pay russians or at the point of uh, consumption
0: i'm afraid it's a point of consumption but uh either way i'm interested in both cases so how would it work the, the cap cap uh at the point of entry
2: poorly because what's going on now would just continue going on right it would be uh, even even less gas would arrive in the Storage facilities would fill up even less. Now we could be very optimistic and say, fine, if the storage facilities fill up even less than was, uh, then they will over the summer under the current regime of gas from you know supplying less than normal, um, then maybe it will incentivize uh, good people like uh, the economy minister Habeck of Germany to maybe look for alternative solutions a little bit more, with a little bit more of an open mind. Let's say. And without the blinkers on, um, but outside of that, it probably wouldn't lead to very good uh, to very good outcomes. Um, at the point of consumption, that's called a big subsidy, right? And then it would literally be uh, the taxpayers at large subsidizing uh, subsidizing Russian gas very much directly. So that, that's that's your two that's your two options.
0: I'm not sure. And, like either of them?
2: No, I don't think there are any good options. Really, I don't know. Axel, do you have a blue sky thinking out of the box uh, kind of option?
0: That's M's domain. The blue sky thing. Uh Axel has a Mac for through clutter. It's not exactly the same thing.
4: Yeah, there's no need to subsidize consumption. There is only a need to change the area and the uh, allocation mm-hmm. of supply, and that's uh, and. <laughs> This is not difficult this is not and this does not call for more regulation there's already far too much of it uh, this call this calls for swift action as to how to um, strengthen the supply chain and <clears throat> how to move away from gas outside of what is needed in the chemical industry and allocate gas resources to the chemical industry. Period. Just, we've discussed this in, in the second week of this, and uh, still the ideologues are still hoping that the war is so short and that it can be negotiated away, so that they please don't have to change anything. But then again, outright stupidity is worse than malice.
0: That we can uh, we can write and enshrine and somewhere. Um, I thought, since you're here, can I ask you about the what did Germany Germany just did to declare a gas emergency? What what does it even mean? Is it just one it, of it the... Is
4: the plan? No, no. The, the gas emergency plan has been already uh, enacted. That's what. Domon, correct me. Is it the twentieth of March or something? So the gas emergency plan has already been enacted. This is just a, um, an escalation in its emergency level. So. And by the and way, I, I need to I can't I can't continue talking now. I'll I'll be passively listening whilst on the panel for another forty five minutes. Sorry
2: guys.
0: I don't think I still need to apologize for anything. Uh Domin, it's just you and me.
2: It is just you and I. Um
0: although there's Raver.
2: There is Raver. There's Sojo. Uh Sojo's still uh, trying to get the Danish government to please send some Caesars off to Ukraine, right Sojo?
5: That's correct. Um Domin. Um if I may be so bold as to ask uh, the room um, everyone who's active at the moment if they wouldn't mind please going to my profile and um, underneath the pinned tweet uh, about Maria aid um, there's um, there's a tweet I've written um, regarding some Caesars that uh, Denmark have and uh, that I would like to see in Ukraine personally and I'm sure the Ukrainians would too. So if you wouldn't mind retweeting that tweet, please, um, I want to try and, and, and get it to, 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 to the, you know, get some traction. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Sergio. Uh, yeah, it's the one in Danish, right? If you're looking for it, the one who don't understand, it says Caesar in it somewhere. That's the one.
5: Yes, that's the one. And it, I, I think it's a, a tweet which is directly under my pinned tweet.
2: Thank you, Sergio. Um Now, on the point of Denmark, Denmark's a European country, isn't it, Ben? Uh, Should we talk a little bit about what happened yesterday at a a certain meeting in Brussels?
0: I'd love to. I'd love to. It's an excellent idea.
2: Okay. Something big happened. but We're going to start at the end. We're going to start at the end and say uh, Ukraine was given a green light to become a candidate for the accession to the European Union uh, by all 27 EU member states, along with Moldova. That was the principal outcome that we we're interested in. And we were very happy that it did come to that outcome, aren't we, Ben?
0: Oh, yeah, we're very, very happy. If anything, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help our future business.
2: It will be good for both Ukraine and for the rest of Europe. Now, this is just the start of the process, but it's the necessary start to the process um, of accession to the European Union. Now the real work starts. As Ursula von der Leyen said, between 2014 and now, as she said this last week, uh, something like 70% of the uh, work has already been done by the Ukrainian government uh, in trying to bring Ukraine closer to the standards uh, used and implemented by the European Union. But, of course, much more has to still be done. This will have many positive effects. We'll get into the positive effects in a minute. Uh, but it was, let's have a form for a second before the content it was a little bit disheartening that it took as long as it did uh, the, the good news were expected quite a bit earlier in the day really they only came out in the evening um, and this is a consequence of some uh, other EU member states some relatively small EU member states taking advantage of the general push and desire to give Ukraine and Moldova candidate status for accession to the EU to try to, I wouldn't call it extort, I mean I probably should call it extort, um, to extort some other concessions regarding other uh, possible candidates and already existing candidates. Uh, This was primarily in regards to Bosnia and Herzegovina and in regards to Albania and North Macedonia. Now North Macedonia has been a candidate for a long while now but it's been blocked from negotiations with the EU by Bulgaria because Bulgaria doesn't agree with North Macedonia's interpretation of history, uh, which is just a very interesting subject. Subject uh, that we won't get into the details of, but you can you can look up all about it, and then your your brain can hurt on your own time. Uh, Albanian accession is tied to North Macedonian accession for not so complex demographic reasons, and. Uh, and a few countries, including Austria, the, the most prominent one, were basically blocking Ukrainian accession to candidate status for a while on the basis that they thought that Bosnia should be given candidate status as well, even though uh, Bosnia Herzegovina is a, you know, despite not actively being in war, honestly in a much less clear political situation uh, as per usual, right? So that's why it took so much longer than expected because the, the Austrians and the Slovenians and the Croatians wanted to extort some additional confessions regarding Bosnia and Herzegovina which was now given kind of a road map to candidate status at the very least saying right these are the political and uh, anti-corruption requirements you'll need to satisfy before you'll be allowed to uh, before you you will get um, candidate status. Uh, so it was a little bit of a It was a little bit of a mess. Not too much of a mess, but a little bit of a mess. Um, Ben, uh, even after the candidate status was awarded to Ukraine, there were some uh, curious comments made by certain European leaders, weren't they? Especially from one of the major EU economies.
0: Sir, Robinson, you mean Belgium?
2: No, major EU economies now, not while they were still run by the of (laughs) Burgundy.
0: Ooh. Um, You would have made a Wonderful Duke of Burgundy. Uh, Yes, it was... Well, we're talking about President Macron of France, and it was a generally weird comment. Not so much what he said, which sounded... It was fairly uh, um, straightforward, I think. But the way he said it, it took exactly two minutes, which is quite a long time, to say something very, very simple. There are people in the eu there are people out of the eu and some of the people out of the eu are closer to us than others and would like to give them sort of good friend status and that's it and but apparently people were the the, the way he answered was the question was so puzzling that people talked about it quite a lot even though he said nothing or at least that my my interpretation of it there what the people who don't agree with this, what did they? What did they think they they heard?
2: So there were some interpretations along the lines of: Is Macron really trying to push his uh, treaties this hard, right? Because Macron apparently stands on the side of involving additional treaty revisions or whole new treaties for the European Union that would include a bunch of new things, uh, including quite possibly. Um, quite possibly a common European army, which is awfully confusing. Um and, and maybe he just wanted to kind of stake out his idea of a European political union as a second tier below the European Union and a little bit more, despite it obviously not coming through on uh, this particular case, right? Um so yeah, it's it's this is very confusing. If you're if you cast your mind back a few months, Macron was actually saying that Ukraine should not be given your eu candidate status uh, so eu accession candidate status and instead Ukraine should go into some you know, lower tier uh into European political union below the European union itself you no know, the looser associations so to speak now, luckily that didn't happen and thank god it didn't because that's um uh, that, that would be a far weaker statement both politically you no, know, geopolitically historically and economically simply but um but nevertheless, right, what what he did say he did elicit quite a bit of confusion, as though he was kind of uh, dragged, kicking and screaming into uh, allowing for candidate status for Ukraine, and now he wants something back. Now he wants, um, you know, possibly some treaty revisions in return, or something along those lines. It was awfully confusing. He also apparently brought up uh, brought up NATO in relation to Ukraine, which makes no sense whatsoever to do at a European Council meeting. But you know, it is what it is.
0: But what was also very confusing to me was the fact that apparently President Zelensky uh, thanked President Macron directly for his uh, special role during those negotiations, uh, which left me very, very confused.
2: Maybe I'm overfitting, but there's a pattern I've, I've observed with communications coming from President Zelensky. He seems to kind of particularly stress and point out uh, anything good done by anyone who did it kind of begrudgingly, right? So he expe- especially, uh, uh, you know, praises, say, Viktor Orban, when Viktor Orban finally does something not completely reprehensible and similar for Macron, similar for all manner of other leaders, right? Whenever they do something that isn't just completely decidedly awful, um, they tend to get quite a bit of praise from him. And I think that's a very general strategy that he's employing, as opposed to an accident.
0: Yeah, sounds likely. Sounds uh, smart. A little bit manipulative, but the man is uh, the head of a state of war, so he's allowed to do those sort of uh, those sort of things. And yeah. So, at what time of the day are we now? Are they already declared the the good news or not? Which good news? What well, in your narrative? Are you giving off the narrative of the day? and where are we
2: well i, I think i think we've uh, we've gone through it we started in the in the middle at the announcement then we went back to what happened before that now we, we discussed a little bit what happened afterwards um i think we should we should leave it at that at the end of the day ukraine is now formally uh candidate for a session to the european union it's good the next step is the actual start of negotiations right remember there, candidates for European Union accession who haven't actually done any negotiating yet. And I think that will be the next, the next sort of big big hurdle that Ukraine has to overcome. It's not like it's smooth sailing between now and actual accession. First, they need to get the negotiations. Now, what we have seen from Ukrainians is that they're thoroughly serious about getting into the EU as soon as possible. So, it, it seems like there will be all the political will in the world within Ukraine to do whatever they have to do. Actually, open up negotiations, and as was noted by from the land, Ukraine has actually done quite a bit more with with regard of, of getting you know, politically ready for negotiations and and passing reforms on the way to negotiations. Which countries usually do at the point of being awarded candidate status, or at least that have in, in the last couple of decades. So, you know that that's probably going to be quite quite helpful in that respect. Um, we'll discuss the benefits of candidacy itself, not just accession, in a bit. Uh, but let's go to Thanos first. Thanos, good
6: morning. Good morning, everybody. And uh, I, I love these uh, discussions because it's not my area of expertise. Uh, may I ask a question? Given some of the setbacks that we are experiencing right now in the, along the eastern front, not necessarily the southern front, but the eastern front, Do you think that there could be pressure from the European Union that as a condition of accession to the European Union that a negotiated peace may be thrust upon uh, the Ukrainians and where in the calculus of the strategic benefits for accession to the European Union and potentially that as a gateway to ultimate NATO membership, might Ukraine be compelled to accept terms of peace from the russians that may not encompass all of the lands that they have taken since 2008 thank you
4: the answer is no the answer is no there is no mechanism in the eu which can be utilized for that purpose of extortion the good thing about the eu is that there are far too many people from far too many very solid northern northeastern southeastern countries who have uh, a clear view that russia is a major threat and that ukraine defends freedom the very few people who don't see it that way are concentrated in three countries and there may be two other countries who are fall- which are fallible but that's pretty much it they may well have a large majority but they do not have the majority in all to decide what's what And that's the good thing about it. And don't forget that these uh, officials are not homogenous in their view, even, and especially Ushi, meaning Ursula von der Leyen, medical doctor who has veered into political office, uh, is fairly well aware that she has absolutely clearly been given a mandate to get Ukraine into the EU as quickly as possible without further conditions. Should the EU ever uh, be motivated to try something, the backlash from nato and from the united states of america would be so intense i don't think that even a french politician wouldn't even dare to consider it uh realistically but having said that i think what you will see is that ukraine will win the war and will be in nato quicker than you can say poof but the eu accession will still be ongoing even if ukraine manages to now with an absolute hyper speed and super intense work during wartime by the the parliament and its ministries, to the extent that these ministries have any capacity to deal with anything else in the war in terms of regulations, procedures, rules, and the likes which they have to introduce other than just the law. But uh, processing the laws which are required for the acquis communautaire to be trans, uh, yeah, transferred and uh, say sorted out on a legal basis, that's the main question at the moment. The French have absolutely no power to suppress the Ukrainian wish for freedom and accession to the EU. That's the good thing. The Germans do have the money, but they don't have the political power either. That's the long and the short of it.
2: Okay, you say this is the long and the short of it, but I'll expand on it a little bit still. Um, so. There, was some, there were some fears that individual actors, uh, you know, such as the one Axel's de- Axel had detailed, would try to pressure Ukraine into something like this. However, those individual actors were in Kyiv last week and made public statements to the contrary, right? So there's at least something to hold them to now, finally. Um, whereby you know they've said very publicly, very clearly that no such pressure is going to be applied. I think that's very beneficial. Uh, and just a little bit of clarification: when Axel mentioned the acquis communitaire, that's the body of common European law that has to be uh, implemented by every country to be able to to be a part of the European Union, because it's basically the, all the sets of standards and um, that, that are you know standardised across the across the European Union, and without. Uh, then be implemented by every country separately, the European Union cannot function. Um, lastly, I would note, as regards to NATO, NATO accession has generally run ahead of European Union accession in what I believe is every single uh, case of any country that acceded to the EU from 2004 onwards. So ever since the European Union started uh, accepting members that used to be a part of um, you know what could be broadly called um the the eastern bloc previously right uh, the one exception being the occupied bit of germany that joined the rest of germany you know 25 years earlier and that got that that got, got that got handled differently for obvious reasons um but yes it, i think it's very likely that uh these sort of pressures cannot be applied even if they wanted even if somebody wanted them to be applied for the simple reason that European Union accession is going to hopefully take a whole lot longer than this war is going to take. Right, The accession to the EU is on the timeline of about a decade, give or take. You're not going to see Ukraine in, enter the European Union in two years, three years, four years, whatever might happen anyway. So because this, this process is quite complex, quite involved, it takes a while. Um, and because of that, you, I don't think it there will be the possibility of framing it in the way that you framed it that you know accession will be conditional finally on conceding territory or making a or making a bad peace with Russia simply because um the war very much hopefully but almost certainly will have been won well before that. Uh right Axel.
6: Thank you guys very much for those answers. That's uh I, I would remark that if this is the case that this would be a watershed moment in uh international politics and uh international security uh for those countries to to not intercede or interfere in the accession and for it to be a tremendous victory uh for ideology of western civilization so thank you
2: thank you and uh while perhaps difficult and while perhaps some will find it difficult to swallow it actually will kind of turn out exactly that way uh you know, with with props to uh, Western democracy at large, I would I would say. Uh, MP, thanks, Dominic, and um, hi everybody. Hey, I was kind of
0: a little bit asking uh, behind the military update. Do you have any sort of uh, military update from the Eastern Front? I saw the Severodonetsk was lost, and then then there was some sort of pocket, you know, uh, let's say south from the Severodonetsk, uh, and then then there's another report that the Russian attack is slowing
7: down. That's that's my first question,
0: and uh, second question was that I didn't
7: quite catch
0: uh, yesterday what sect uh, Axel and you mentioned the the. You know the where we were discussing about you know the status of 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 Ukraine and uh, and Moldova. You, you recommend a specific sect so I did catch that. Which Oh
2: God, MP! It it was a joke. It was not Captain. <laughs> it that was just purely a joke. It's it's awful. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. You know, no, I was... I'm, I'm,
0: I'm definitely searching my supermarkets here in Germany for that, but... <laughs> Road
4: Kepchen. It's R- MP. R- it's yeah. Road Kepchen. Yeah. There's a can little I... red riding hood as a logo.
2: Okay. It's the alternative to Henkel Trocken No, it's, no, it's, no okay. it's the
4: old... It's, it's, there's an
0: alternative,
4: only having a headache and
0: no, not a headache. No, no, no I'm used to headaches, by the way. But Actually, can I have that type? But let's let's go to the military after if you have something.
4: Well, the next military update is due in about uh, three hours, not earlier, because uh, we've just been reporting a little bit on the HIMARS system impact. This was earlier uh, this morning um, yeah, after CJ came on. Okay, good. Yeah, th- yeah. Uh, not only the impact of those two batteries, but the other two are also deployed. We just haven't seen them in action. And uh, what we do understand is that the British, the four British systems are on route and uh, that our American friends have said that another four are coming, but seemingly there's more in transport. So we'll be interested to see that maybe the Germans come next year as well. Hopefully, yeah.
3: So not really a, a military update per se, but if I remember right, the other day ISW said that Russia was reduced to using its remaining VDV and Wagner forces as basically their schwerpunk and that the, the conscripts and recruits that they've been able to muster out of Russia are basically being put into secondary roles and may only be given three to seven days training in some cases, although that may be LNR-DNR forces. And so Russia's overall offensive capacity is decreasing, um, even as her numbers remain relatively stable, as she's able to replace losses with, with, with fresh bodies. So how much more... Russia offensive capacity Russia has remains to be seen. I know Michael Kaufman has been saying that Russia's offensive capacity will culminate by the end of the month. Also, uh, there's now videos of HIMARS in action in Ukraine, which means uh, if those video is actually uh, from Ukraine, there were a lot of dead Russians today via M270s or HIMARS. It's kind of a dark video. So that's a good thing because once they are in action, just the fear factor alone is going to start to impact Russian operations and influence how they deploy, what type of operations they do, and how much artillery they're willing to devote to something that may be smothered at any time by a
2: rocket they can't count. I wish Portland was around, because I'd ask him what the countermeasures for against the GMLRS are. Uh, Thanos?
6: Thank you. A couple of quick observations uh, regarding... Uh, Those recent developments of the uh, M777, which is our 155 millimeter uh, artillery systems, pretty modern, and the uh, MLRS systems that uh, we are likewise sending to uh, Ukraine. There's been a lot of discussion recently about uh, Ukraine's ever increasing uh, capability and capacity for counter battery, not just in the uh, outranging Uh, Capabilities of the M777 uh, and the actual uh, MLRS systems, but also their ability to uh, quickly uh, source the uh, launch point of the incoming rounds uh, and work up fire control solutions. Uh, This is nothing short of a tremendous accomplishment and a testament to uh, the urgency. With which uh, Ukrainian artillery forces and their trainers are moving, uh, this is something that we teach uh, months and and really years to become a, a master at. And for these you know journeymen to be able to uh, take Western systems and to be able to effectively employ them on the battlefield against a numerically superior force is is absolutely commendable and should be studied uh, by tacticians and strategists for years to come. The, the combat power that has been generated from this force and the urgency at which uh, these individuals and these teams and these units have committed themselves to learning the system and learning the tactics Uh, should be noted and should be replicated by all Western-friendly forces in the future. One other thing, and this gets to a little bit of American domestic intrigue, Uh, NBC, the National Broadcasting Corporation, pretty well known internationally, uh, in the past has been very aligned with the administration in terms of talking points and sometimes has even displayed a tendency to foreshadow. Uh, administration talking points. And recently they have begun uh, reporting that claims to Ukrainian uh, forces reaching a culminating point in terms of their being able to replace troops and uh, supposed gaps in uh, training and uh, readiness. And, And basically they made the accusation of sending forces uh, forward with no training into the uh, Eastern Front. This is kind of the first time that I'd ever heard this in uh, open source uh, you know, publications. So I'm curious as to what the thoughts might be on A, if this is true, if there are some issues with getting forces uh, to the front that do not have uh, really sufficient training and experience and be uh, if it is or if it isn't, what would be the uh, the point behind uh, such reporting at this time? Thanks,
2: River, I'm going to let you let you try to answer this because um, the better a better job than me, that's for sure. Uh, I
3: only heard the the first part of Thanos' question about the the, the counter battery in M triple sevens, and then I was responding to Rahel uh, via DM. Um, so with the m sevens in the counter-battery role, recently there have been reports that Russia has been using EW assets to block the counter-battery radars to try to lessen the effect of the m sevens hunting Russian artillery. So the introduction of HIMARS being able to go after these EW assets could be really, really important. And once again, allowing the m sevens, the Caesars, the Krabs, the uh, Sazanas to uh, start hunting Russian guns effectively again. And if there was more to that question, could you restate it to
6: Absolutely. This was kind of a domestic entry question. Uh, NBC reporting of uh, similar issues with respect to manpower and training and sending ill-equipped and unprepared forces to the the eastern front, Uh, just like there's a lot of reporting about Russians sending similarly uh, equipped and trained forces to their western front. My question is, uh, given that NBC has been kind of foreshadowing uh, administration talking points, is this indicative of a potential administration change in talking points of policy? Uh, if not, why are they reporting this? Because this was the first that I had heard it.
3: Uh, there may simply be a case of, of lost, in translation, lost in translation at the NBC level. Um, so Ukraine has been sending TDF forces to the east to, to uh, bolster the, the JFO forces um, because Ukraine doesn't have a, a lot uh, in the cookie jar yet because of all the brigades she's building haven't built out and trained out yet. The TDF are not uh, inexperienced. They've been under fire. A lot of them are populated with veterans who have seen service in the eight-year Donbass war. They may be mostly light infantry and light on equipment, but they can help hold shoulders, guard planks, uh, be uh, fed in as, as riflemen where needed. So it's it's not as bad. They're not sending uh, kids straight off the street right into the, the combat of the mush, uh, Russian meat grinder like the Russians are doing. It's two completely
2: different situations. So basically it's a difference in nuance, right? In There the, are the degrees to all of this. And uh, it looks like a, a, a degree in statement has maybe been uh, been lost in translation, right?
3: Yeah, the, the, the Ukrainian TDF units may not be as well equipped as, say, American National Guard units, but they fill pretty much the, the same role at this point. Uh, they have combat experience. These are veteran troops. They may be mostly light infantry, but they are not green kids.
6: So this is, this is a narrative, then, that I think that this forum can help to uh, counter with uh, facts and, and maybe some tweets out about that. And I don't know who wants to take the lead on that. But when you have an organization with the reach of NBC out there, you know, claiming all is lost, all is lost, woe is me. They're sending, you know, these green music teachers with no experience out to the meat grinder It's going to raise a lot of questions on the American front about, wait, why are we sending everything if they're about to collapse? And they're not. And so I I think we need to kind of help start smacking down that message.
3: Oh, there I agree with you. There are a lot of uh, peas, and defeatists in American media um, who simply want to move on to the next news story, whether it be J6, the latest Supreme Court. Uh, ruling high gas prices, they'll they'll always find something else to talk about other than Ukraine. And I have a feeling at some point, at least for some of them, there will be another Panama's paper that will show uh, links to people that they should not have probably been linked to.
4: NBC, isn't that the station which had Brian Williamson and others who were so utterly good at discerning information about warfare?
6: Are you talking about Brian Williams, who was qualified to fly a B-2 bomber, who uh, was the first man to walk on the moon, and uh, also, <laughs> also uh, single-handedly did the kill shot on bin Laden during the raid?
2: Wait, I thought no. it was Mars. That, that,
6: hero, that American hero and his predecessor who was equally good.
3: Don't forget his rape button in his office.
6: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that guy. I, you know, I miss the days of uh, when we got our American news from a Canadian named uh, Peter Jennings and a uh, and, and a good uh, a, another good man, or at least he was back in the day. Tom Brokaw.
4: I, I'm old enough to remember the fights. Um... Ronald Reagan, so charmingly had with Sam Donaldson.
6: And they were all in good spirit, too. I mean, it was it was all the best intentions. There was no one was trying to do any gotchas. It was just good back and forth. Let's get down to the brass tacks. Ronald Reagan harbored no ill will towards Sam Donaldson. He thought he was a pain in the ass sometimes, but he didn't wish him ill will.
2: Absolutely. Um, Maciej, you're a journalist. What are you doing to try to get us back uh, to you know to, to to the old status quo? Um,
8: pretty much nothing, I would say. That's uh, that would be my my honest answer. <laughs> no, it's uh um, you know it's just uh, as Axel and Joseph Schumpeter said. Uh, maybe I should switch the uh, order there, but never mind. Everything is downstream from culture, and I think political culture got more divisive and uh and yeah and yeah i got partisan and that's just uh, that's just the way it is and people are really i mean you know people are really feeling that the huge amounts of compromises that they m- may justify when it comes to their journalistic integrity right Um uh, that that will be justified because there is some higher goal right because if you have really i mean like if you want a war or you perceive it and and just 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 to be clear i'm not even you know of course we are talking about a war but i'm talking about people's perception and and apart from from what's happening in ukraine if these people are perceiving it as a existential war because one side is full of right-wing mobs that will basically lynch minorities and create an autocratic society and destroy democracy. And the second thing, uh, there is an other side that's full of leftist mobs that want to basically force your children to transit to another gender and whatever. Uh, so if you are at a war, right, you won't divulge information that is could be detrimental to your side, right? I mean there won't be a situation like in ukraine where uh uh ukrainian soldier would go to the russian license say like full transparency we stationed here here and here right no it's natural he won't do that because that's just just one-on-one of you know secrets right so the same actually the same kind of logic works for journalism right you know the information sometimes you know that it could be detrimental to your side and you're not talking about it because you're you know, you, you, you basically pushing a narrative. And of course, that, that goes to all media is, is narratives. It's just telling stories and always have been, right? I'm just, I, you know, when we are talking about good old times, we usually have individuals, few individuals in mind that we remember and a pretty specific period in time. Because, you know, whenever people say journalism is such a great uh, profession, but it kind of got, you know, uh, it kind of got destroyed or it got in so was, Well, you know, if you want to go back to the times of Robert barons and, you know, where every basically newspaper was either in the hands of some big industrialist or was in the hands of just a party and it was just, you know, when, when, Modern journalism basically was born. It was born during times of uh, French Revolution and, uh, you know, Père Duchesne, and it wasn't reporting facts on the ground. It was called to action. It was calls calls to murder people, right? That's the traditions of journalists we're talking about. So I don't think, and actually, you know, it's like I can walk into any journalism class in any university in the world and pretty much with a 100% accuracy tell if they're telling, telling a history of journalists, I can tell you what they're talking about. Because in 99% of, of the cases, they'll be talking about Watergate, right? Or, you know, uh, or the Vietnam War, for example, right? So so few examples where journalists feel like they do did some good. But if you look in a, you know, apart from Tom Brokaw, all the journalists that work in different places made deals. And so, you know, it's just, it, it was always a troubled profession, I would say, always, right? Because media is always weaker than uh, than all the, you know, power brokers that, that exist in and democracy. And I'm not even talking about systems that that are not democratic, really. So, you know, it's just, I always urge people, you know, don't look at the title of the publication. Uh, if you really want to, to, to check your sources, check the individual and, and you have to look at them many years and that's the only thing i'm doing i'm trying i never tell people well you cannot criticize me because i'm impartial you cannot criticize me because i'm the member of this fourth you know power this important profession of journalism and if you criticize me it's basically you basically rooting for putin because autocrats always you know persecute journalists no it's our job of every one of us to find find our listeners viewers or readers And basically convince them that we're not bullshitting them. And let me tell you, there are a lot of people that want to be bullshitted, right? If you remember when Tucker Carlson, who we talk about, but I'm not going to talk about him in in the Ukrainian context. When he said during the election, uh, I mean post-election, this whole debacle, right? When he said that Sidney Powell actually don't have received the trump voters absolutely destroyed him in the internet right they they hated him he had to basically reclaim his his valor so so it's like people also uh are to somewhat to i mean people of course reacting to the divisiveness of the politics but people also have this need to basically for somebody not to tell them the the real truth or the facts or basically show them complex complexity of many issues right but they want to basically re themselves in their already held opinions right and actually i well actually i i know people right i know people my friends or colleagues that i know for a long time that work in journalism and for example they for example when they take upon this mission for example i'll be the one that will be the conspiracy theorists, right? And these were serious people in the past. And suddenly they are tied to this group of people. Of course, these people treat them like authorities, but at the same time, if there is a new piece of information that they say, okay, this is kind of over the top. I don't think this is true, right? I don't think that... There were many people like that who were just saying about COVID, right? And, and, and oh, this is a pandemic. It was planned. It never happened. There was no pandemic, right? right? But when Ukraine was attacked by Russia, they switched and they said, well, actually, it's Russia attacking Ukraine. And they were eaten. I mean, eaten by their, uh, uh, by their supporters, right? Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a really, really weird way of uh, things working right now. But remember, there are still people, I always looked at this when I'm, sorry for, for the long run, I, I'm just finishing. When I was teaching at school, right, everybody was speaking, uh, well, I was talking like, Oh, social media, the phones, and it's just, uh, it's just irredeemable, the irredeemable generation. And to some extent, it's true, but also, you know how, how many pupils I have and students that just basically their parents told them, you won't have a phone 24-7, you won't have a TV 24-7, you won't have your PlayStation 24-7, you will read books. And these were normal human beings, because human beings haven't changed, so it's not difficult still to be reasonable to be critical uh to basically think for yourself and i know that thinking for yourself is such a uh such a you know uh crazy things to say because all those conspiracy theories will tell you to think for yourself, but of course they they point you to a completely different direction so that's just it you know it's always ultimately whatever uh it's not about you know building a uh, resistible to to manipulation and falsehood journalism it's just about individuals in a democracy and every each one of them just not letting themselves to be bullshitted and also not bullshit yourself you know because it's just a natural psychological reaction that you want to basically keep your views always as the truth and you don't want to be challenged because that's uh, you know that's a challenge is challenge.
2: Thanks much no, I thought you'd have a, a short answer and you, you over-delivered as per usual. Um, I don't know who's first, uh, but I'll go with Axel and Tom and then Clyde just because that's how you on my screen uh, and obviously Axel.
4: Yeah, I was just about to highlight one thing before I go back to work, uh, people, and that Tom Brokaw as being the one who hasn't taken anything and has been a, a leading light, I find that... Um, yeah, that that is something which I think both Thanos and others would probably also royal against. You yeah, go, so
9: Tom? Yeah, um, I had something I wanted to raise, but I, I just wanted to say how much I agreed with uh, Maciej's take on things. I, I think one of the one of the problems that, and, and I think it's probably existed throughout history in journalism, as as Maché knows better than than I, is when you start getting sources of information that are not even trying to be impartial and are presenting themselves as news for liberals or news for conservatives. Um, I think when you get that kind of environment, you end up with people getting completely different information diets, if you can imagine that. And the, the thing is, we think that we know the world, but we actually don't. We know what we've seen of the world, what we've read about the world, and the problem is that we think that is the world, if, if that makes sense. And we have no idea of, of what we're ignorant of, the sort of the unknown unknowns. And then because of psychological biases like availability heuristic and, and uh, representativeness heuristics, we think that the information we've got is how it all is. And I think when I learned this, it, it totally like, blew my mind that you, you just make an assumption that you know the world, whereas actually you know a really quite small slice of the world compared to the other seven billion humans that we're sharing it with the the other biases that that macho was mentioning just to name them some some will already know so confirmation bias is the tendency to seek out uh, and agree with information that already
2: fits with your worldview i don't know if you lost tom or if that was the end of his question Maciej, if, you'd wish, if, you'd, if you would wish to respond.
8: No, no, I don't want to stretch that segment uh, too long. It's, I think it's fine. And Thank you guys for listening to me. And sorry, for, I wasn't in the space for a long time, so I kind of got some pent up talking in me. Uh,
2: in which case, Maciej, we'll come back in a minute. We can talk about the uh, accession of Ukraine to of status for accession to the European Union. But let's go to Clyde first. As
4: in, mache don't run away.
2: Yeah, don't run away.
7: Okay, I'll Clyde. Thank you. I have a question about, uh, or any comment from Axel or others about um, some comments this last weekend. Jack Keane was on cable from he's from Institute for the Study of War, talking about the progress of the war. And he was really, um, I don't want to say coming out of his skin, but not far from it, just kind of upset with, the slowness of the West's response and said that we had a chance to destroy the Russian army in the Donbass. And because we weren't responding quickly enough, we basically, I think he used the American football analogy. We had the ball first and 10 on the one yard line and we fumbled it. Um, and he was, he, he, he said it still was out there, uh, for, but he was, he was pretty frustrated. Um, that segment was up on the net for quite some time on Fox's site, but, uh, I think I trust what he says pretty much. I mean, I think he seems to know what he's doing. That ISW site seems to know what they're doing, but you know, what would I know? And I just want to know if there's anybody's take on on that uh, particular thought process or how he presented that, or if anybody else saw it. Thanks.
4: We're in the second quarter.
7: Well, he seemed to think that he he seemed to think that basically we could end it. That it could have been. I mean, it just could have been basically. Uh, and I think what he was coming from was that there was just a chance that they were concentrating their efforts in this, these areas that they just could have been just blown away and, and um, limited to suffering. And so. Anyway.
4: Yeah, but that's coming. No, no, your no, comment. I, I get it. I, I get it, but um, it's not over yet. It's second quarter, and uh, with the Heimars and the Gimlers in, in play, I'd say John Elway has just been sacked. All right,
7: thank you. That's uh, that's encouraging. <laughs> Thanks a lot. The the other
2: thrust of what he was saying, right, should be certainly applauded and followed, uh, namely that the will should be sending stuff, and we're in complete agreement there, aren't we, accent
7: He also made a comment. He also made a comment about the comments from um, France and Germany to, over the over that period of time about how they weren't, uh, you know, that they were supporting. Ukraine uh, that with, with their territorial claims and their sovereignty, and he basically didn't believe it. He said that's what they say, but that's not what really, really what they think. Um, you know, under his breath, basically, they want Ukraine to give us land. So, anyway, that was a brief comment. That wasn't the thrust of what he was talking about. That wasn't the thesis of his argument that day, but, that, but he did say that, just briefly.
2: So that was certainly a concern before their trip to Kiev. Um, and to some degree it's certainly a concern now still that they're trying to, you know, under the table, argue with Ukraine for Ukraine to do something silly like that. However, the good part is that they've publicly said the opposite now. So these least they, they have something to be held against, and something for Ukraine, you know, were such pressure applied to also point to the public statements. So, you know, whatever reason or whatever basis they made those statements on publicly, thank god they did because there's at least some level of accountability then and especially in france especially in germany the the public sentiment domestically isn't particularly um well inclined to be allowing anything like that so so